0: My definition of success is embracing like the hustling grind for whatever it is your goal is. Alright guys, welcome to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. I couldn't be more excited to have Doug Biro here, who I've known, I guess... We've probably known each other for like five or six years, Yeah, at least, I'd say. And, um, you know, I I find Doug's life and work fascinating. Doug will deny that it's fascinating, but you guys will all, I think, appreciate how fascinating it is. Um, You know, one of the things that one of my friends who listens to the podcast actually mentioned to me, was, you know, each of my podcasts is so varied. The, whoever I'm interviewing is like a, a different personality, but the first one's my mom, and then, you know, I had a professional football player and, you know, a doctor as a bartender. And one of the things that he said to me, which really kind of resonated, you know, it's kind of sometimes it takes a, like eyes looking from the outside in to really shed some perspective on what you're doing. He said, you know, all of your interviews are basically about success, but like everyone defines their own success in a different way. And he said, you know, why don't you start your podcast by asking whoever you're interviewing, like, what their definition of success is. And this is the one thing that I actually did ask Doug to prepare a little bit before we started the podcast. Just just think about it. It doesn't have to be, you know, anything, you know, uh, mind-blowing. It's just like, you know, everyone's definition of success is, is different. Like, for me, you know, my definition of success, and we were kind of just touching on this on the conversation we were having, is embracing like the hustling grind for whatever it is your goal is you know just being fully invested it doesn't matter you know if you're you know making a gajillion dollars or you know saving the world it's having you know personal fulfillment in whatever it is that you're doing whether it's doing a podcast or seeing patients or you know reading slides or you know producing a piece of art or a piece of music being fully invested and immersed in it is success to me you know that's my definition of success Doug, what's yours? Well, Well, you
1: know, obviously you, you asked me to ponder it, and I have, and, and it's, it's a difficult question for me, because there's so many different types of success in one's life, uh, emotional success, and frankly, you know, uh, having been divorced twice and, and, and not in a primary relationship right now, I don't feel particularly successful in relationships at the moment. However, family success, you know, I have a wonderful 20 year-old kid who's a sophomore in, in uh, Los Angeles at Occidental College, and he's the joy of my life, and he gives me great pleasure and fulfillment watching him grow and, 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 and blossom. He's an artist as well. he's quite talented. Um, his mother is, is an artist, so between the he got like good friends, genes. right? What's she, that? She lives in France, right? She lives in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, okay. So, you know, despite the fact that she moved to Amsterdam 15, 17 years ago, uh, he, <clears throat> he's, he's very well adjusted, given that his parents live, you know, so far apart. And uh, she's been a very active mother, despite the fact that she's in Amsterdam, thanks to technology. You know, yeah. Skype has... Well, saved smaller. it. So she's still the boss. Yeah. Well, the women but, is. you know, in that part of my life, I feel successful. Um, family. You know, I have a small family, but we're close knit family. And lately I've had to spend a lot of time. My mother is 91 and I have a brother who has a chronic illness since he's in his mid 20s. And so between my mother and my brother, I've spent a lot of time trying to to make their lives more comfortable. So, you know, I, I feel loved by them and, and I love them. So, in that part of my life, I feel success. Um, Are they in New York, Doug? They're in New Jersey. Okay, close by. Yeah, they're close by. My brother's in Montclair and my mother is in Verona. They're literally neighboring towns. As far as work goes, you know, I, I, I've had a, a, a modicum of success over, you know, the last 30 years. I've been lucky, I've worked with a lot of talented people, a lot of talented artists, musicians. I've been in the advertising and then the music business as a creative director originally, and then about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I started my own production company and, and have worked as a producer director ever since. And I've been quite lucky to work with a lot of amazing artists.
0: So just to back, give a little background here, Doug is, the owner, writer, producer, director of Hudson River Films, which is his own studio. And you know what fascinated me about Doug, I know Doug's body of work is pretty tremendous actually, but he's worked with a lot of really prominent musicians like Herbie Hancock and Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga and you know done films with them. and as I'm a huge music fan, particularly I love jazz and you know herbie Hancock is is one of my idols. Um, that's years ago when Doug. Told me that. And you actually gave me a, a DVD. I don't know if you remember. I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm so psyched. It's obviously, I, I st- still, of course, have it. Um, but l- reading about your bio, you know, just on your website, yeah, I, di- I, never, I didn't realize that you actually came from the world of advertising first. That's right. But were you always interested in film? Is that, did you go to school for film? Uh,
1: no, I didn't. I wish I had. I, I went to Colgate University in upstate New York liberal arts education english major um i i really didn't develop a passion for film until you know at least you know i was in my mid to late 30s i think i had an uncle and still have the same uncle who was a a successful ad guy like Uh, madman era types yeah Yeah. sort of madman era exactly and so I was introduced to his world in Midtown Manhattan and thought it looked pretty interesting and glamorous. And, uh, you know, when I got out of college, I was a newspaper reporter first and then ultimately segued into being a copywriter at an ad agency and worked at several Midtown ad agencies. What
0: newspaper were you working for?
1: I worked for uh, the Morris County uh, Daily Record, it's was called, one of the larger Jersey papers. Uh-huh. And that was right out of Colgate.
0: And then, what what motivated the transition into advertising?
1: Uh, laziness. Uh, <laughs> I was on the night shift as a reporter, so I used to come into work at 4, four or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and attend local meetings and whatnot. And and then you come back and write your story at midnight. You know, and basically the hours were I was working from four in the afternoon till four a.m. Gotcha. And I, you know, after doing that for about a year, I just thought, you know, this isn't that interesting. <laughs> you know, I would be a substitute police reporter, and that was interesting. You know, I followed a couple of murders. And ironically, all these years later, 30 years later, you know, I besides music, I also work in the true crime genre. Right. You did, the
0: the Gotti film you did as well, right?
1: Well, there's the Gotti film that my partners and I just finished this summer that aired on A&E uh, called... God, uh, called Gotti, Godfather and Son, story of the relationship between the infamous Don and his son, John Jr., four-hour docu-series. Wow. And it turned out pretty well. I'm proud of that piece. Yeah. And you have but, a true crime. There's a but sh- for my, my one of my closest friends uh, is a guy named Kevin Kaufman, and Kevin has a, a five-season run of a show called The Perfect Murder on ID Network. It, we just finished up season five. Oh, wow. And so throughout those five years, I've been a producer on the show. And my my role mainly has been—it's a show that that, um, uh, marries reenactments of the murder story with interviews of the real people involved in the story. So while Kevin would shoot the reenactments, I was traveling around the country and interviewing usually law enforcement, the detectives who worked the case, Local press who covered the case, and whenever possible, family relatives of the victim, which was no easy feat. Wow. Um, So when you're interviewing um, the mother who's lost her, you know, her only son, or a sister who's lost her brother, I mean, it's pretty heavy. And uh, so for the last five years, I've been doing quite a bit of that, and it's been an interesting process and and, uh, education. And uh, I, I suppose, for me, it, it, you, you learn empathy. Because uh, if you don't have empathy, you get nowhere. Right. You know, you have to really, you have to feel for, the, for these people that are telling their story in right. order for them
0: to open up. It's hard to wrap your head around, but I can't, I can't even imagine. So, I mean so
1: I've mind. been in this true, cr- true crime genre, with thanks to my buddy Kevin, and the, uh, and the Gotti story with Kevin and, and Richard Stratton, who actually brought the idea to Kevin and I. Richard is a guy that you need to yeah. bring on to here. Yeah, because well, he, his stories are incredible. Anyway, so that was Gotti. So See, the back last your roots sort of. Yeah. The last five years have been sort of a combination of true crime work and, and music. Very un, unlikely pairing. Right. But the music stuff is, you know, that's my true love. And going back to what you said about passion for what you do, uh, shooting artists and and concerts with mainly jazz, but also classical and rock is my passion.
0: Yeah. Well, you must be a music fan, I I imagine.
1: Yeah, big music fan.
0: So just kind of going back. So you're a reporter, and then you were working in advertising. So so I guess you're, you're kind of the... Reporting job, the hour sucked, and you, know, you the, made a the transition. Adver- the advertising, I have an interesting
1: background in advertising. because well, When I was about 30, I was recruited by a headhunter to go to Japan and work on English-language advertising for Panasonic brand products in Japan. And I, I lived in Japan for about three and a half years. Well, do you speak Japanese? Tsukoshidake. I mean, a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Very good sushi bar, <laughs> Japanese. That's good. Yeah. Negitoromaki Nihon <laughs> onigashimas That
0: sounds authentic to me.
1: Yeah, so I'm good in a sushi bar. And I love Japan. I had an amazing experience. And when I came back, I worked my way into the more conventional Madison Avenue world uh-huh. as a young copywriter.
0: So, what is that exactly? You're basically writing copy writing for copy ads. Writing copy for ads, yeah.
1: Okay. All, you know, all different products back
0: in the day like like catchy little phrases and things yeah. like that, right? Yeah.
1: And then started that's really where my love of film developed because I, you know, as I started to become a more successful copywriter and I would sell ideas that would get turned into commercials, as the writer of the commercial, you usually went on the shoot. So I started I started watching big commercials be made. Like for what? Um well the first ones I actually the The first ones that were of significance and real budgets uh, were Nissan commercials, right actually when Datsun became Nissan. Okay. We're changing the name of Datsun to Nissan. I hope you're not changing all that room. No, all we're changing is our name. I was working at the New York agency called William Esty, no longer in business, but at the time was the agency for Nissan. So I started writing commercials for for cars and trucks, mm-hmm. and uh, had my first success with a Nissan came out with a line of new pickup trucks, and I I dubbed them hard body trucks.
0: The Nissan hard body is driven by a standard 134 horsepower engine, and it became the
1: the catchphrase. It became the catchphrase, and then we wrote jingles, and uh, you know I wrote lyrics and worked oh, with really? composers. So that sort of launched my, my
0: advertising career a little bit. Did you have interest in, so, you know, just transitioning this to like your film career. Did you have interest in like cameras and like the tech of it? and Or was it just sort of? The, well, I'd
1: you know, always been a photographer had, okay. with still cameras. Okay.
0: So it was like a hobby of yours. Yeah, that was a
1: hobby of mine. But then suddenly being on a big set. With with real directors and big thirty five millimeter gear, I mean th- that's changed completely now. You know we're it's looking the, at, yeah. we're looking at cameras that are this big right. that you know have an amazing image, but when I got into the business, you know everything was still being shot on thirty five millimeter, uh-huh. and the budgets reflected. So those are those big big cameras, cameras right? big yeah. big movie cameras. Yeah. As one tries to go up the ladder career wise, I, I, I got a job at uh, at McCann Erickson which is truly one of the big agencies of the world. Mm -hmm. They were mentioned often as competitors in in Mad Men. I was at McCann Erickson yesterday. Why? McCann. McCann. McCann
0: bought PPL and us. McCann Erickson.
1: McCann. McCann was a classic agency, one of the biggest in the world. Still around? Still around. Oh, more than ever. All over the world, they have offices. And the reason they're all over the world is they, they represent the biggest multinational brands, i.e. Coca-Cola is mm-hmm. one of their, you know, really their signature brand for that agency, as well as Nestle okay, and Levi's and on and on and on. So they're I got a to... job with McCann Erickson on what they call the international team. And suddenly I was being shipped out to different ports to work on Projects. As um, soon as I I joined that international team, I was sent to Belgium to help the local creative team on um, new advertising for Goodyear tires, and and then I started doing Coca-Cola products, not only Coke but Diet Coke and Fanta and Sprite gotcha. and and that that really opened up my world career-wise because you're dealing with the biggest client one of the biggest clients in the world and and you're doing really mainstream pop image oriented advertising. Right. You know, thank God I wasn't doing, you know, business to business technology. Well not right. te- these are
0: like sexy ads. You these know, are sexy like ads. T V fun, fun like, ads.
1: Yeah. Uh you know, casting, you know, actors and actresses and going to exotic locations, shooting commercials all over the world.
0: When you're in like Belgium, is it for like European audiences?
1: They were for local audience, but also depending on the nature of the spots, they could easily be sent around the world and be adapted in local markets. Gotcha, so this was like
0: very sort of um, truly global work.
1: (laughs) It was was global work, and I was very lucky. I had a mentor, unfortunately no longer with us, named Marcio Moreira, who uh, was Brazilian, who was the chief creative officer of McCann Erickson worldwide. And, you know, we got along well and he helped move my career along. Got me ultimately the gig in, in Japan, which was really my those were my headiest days of, of advertising in
0: the uh early nineties. So is this like advertising like how you see it in Mad Men? Like you work crazy hard but you party crazy hard. And it's like <laughs> this like wild life. Uh I wish I had the touch that Don Draper has. Um,
1: But, yeah, I mean, certainly it was, there are worse ways to make a living. Right. Uh, And I would say, frankly, both from the advertising business side and the music business side, the people that are in those those lines of work tend to be a little looser than, say, if you go to work for IBM. Right. uh, Or GE, you know. And those are great companies, yeah. but working in the record business and the ad business tends to foster a, a more relaxed type <laughs> of person. And yes, there was a lot of partying.
0: When uh, just sort of like a tangent. When I, when I was a resident, we were traveling. The uh, three or four of us were traveling to Chicago for a meeting, and so we're flying out of New York, and our flight was delayed, you know, like pretty significantly. So we're, you know, what are you going to do? Like we're like twenty something years old. We're at the bar we're drinking Bloody Marys, you know, like one Bloody Mary turns into like three or four Bloody Marys. We get on the plane, continue drinking like the whole flight. So we're pretty rowdy on the plane. Some, some of the folks on the plane loved it. Some of them were you know, kind of annoyed with us. But when we finally landed in Chicago, the people sitting behind us were like, wow, you know, you guys are so much fun. Like, what do you guys do? and we're like yeah we're dermatologists (laughs) and the guy's like no way we could have sworn you were in advertising (laughs) so that's what always makes me think of that you know like that hard partying advertising lifestyle
1: that's funny well don't you know doctors are certainly known to uh how how am i going to put this without it sounding insulting i mean doctors have people's lives on in their in their hands literally and so i I think when they're off-duty, there's certainly a a desire to relax. Yeah, of course. The visual representation of how alcohol affects people of different ages. We have the young. Morning. The slightly older.
0: Please stop talking.
1: The slightly older still. And, alas, the very,
0: very, very old. She is unconscious and virtually unwakeable. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And uh, maybe share an adult beverage or two. Yeah,
0: there's nothing wrong with with that. So... Um, so from advertising, so I only know you as a filmmaker. You yeah,
1: know? so from, from the really wonderful years at McCann Erickson um, working on the Coca-Cola, I, I was actually, I went to Japan years before for this little agency doing Panasonic. And then 10 years later, I end up at McCann Erickson on the international team. And there's an opening for a creative director on the Coca-Cola business in Tokyo. Oh, wow. Because I had been in Japan and had sort of a successful time there, they offered me that job. I interviewed for it, I got it. And oh, wow. I went off to Japan. So I was did then, two tours I was in then married at that point, and my wife and I went to Tokyo and were given, you know, palatial expat apartment and had just the greatest time for wow. four years.
0: Is this Julian's?
1: mom no this is okay. not julian's mom this is my second okay. second wife at that point gotcha A lovely terrific lady actually that i should have stayed with but didn't <laughs> at any rate uh so suddenly i'm in tokyo at mccann erickson as the creative director on the coke business with huge budgets from our coca-cola client like
0: what are the like mil- mil- actually, mil- millions of yeah, dollars cr- million now,
1: right? multi-million dollar commercials wow multi million like what's up commercial like cost what year is this by the way this is this is 90, 90 through 93
0: okay and like what is a like the a budget for commercial for a co-commercial then
1: well they would range in those days from uh, I will tell you from uh on the low side 250 thousand dollars to two and a half million dollars wow for a 30 second spot 30 or maybe a 60 or maybe uh. you shoot a 60 and you cut A 30 and a 15 but on coke in those days uh, we had a client in japan who was from georgia sort of a bigger than life guy named burke mckinney Mm. wonderful guy and he wanted the best he absolutely wanted the best for his brand and so he was a coke executive he was a coke executive head of marketing for 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 japan okay big job gotcha and so he was my client And he wanted the best. And I was very fortunate. I had been introduced on an earlier trip to Los Angeles to David Fincher, who's one of the great movie directors of our time. Yeah. And considered one of the most talented guys in the world of filmmaking. And so when he said he wants the best, and I said, are you willing to pay for it? He said, yeah, I'll pay for it. I asked Fincher if he would direct some Coke commercials. And to my surprise, he said, yeah. No way. So we did... We did a couple of them that are just amazing, and uh, I I do have a good little story about the first time we worked together. We we I wrote a I wrote a commercial called uh, Blade Roller. It was a takeoff on Blade Runner, uh-huh. the famous Ridley sure. Scott movie. Fincher then took the idea that I wrote and rewrote it completely and made it much better. He's now. And then he got into it. And the budget for the commercial, for one 60-second commercial to be shot in Los Angeles on the same, in the same area that they shot the original Blade Runner. Uh, I forget the name of the building, but uh, anyway, uh, Bradbury Building in downtown LA. Uh So it's two days before the shoot's about to begin. The budget is $1.3 million. The, uh, David's producer, a woman named Jan calls me into her office two days before, closes the door. I'm going, what the hell is this? She says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but David can't shoot the commercial for the budget you have. I said, Jan, I, I, gave, I gave you exactly what you asked for, $1.3 million. You're telling me we can't do 160 for $1.3 million? And this is in '93. Right, right. That's a big money. That was a lot of money. It's big money now. But it's big money now, <laughs> yeah. and it was big money then. So she goes, you're dealing with David Fincher. He's got big ideas. And now that we've costed them out fully, we realize that we're a million dollars short. I said, a million dollars? You want me to get another million? We're two days before the start? She said, yeah, otherwise David's not gonna show up. We need need this this to be a $2.3 million commercial. So I called Burke. I said, Burke, we got a little problem. I said, I'd love you to come out here and sit down and have dinner with with, uh, David and Jan and me and discuss the budget because they need a million dollars. Burke was super cool. He said, I'll be there tomorrow. You set up the dinner. He got on a plane from Tokyo, came into Los Angeles. We sat David Fincher next to Burke McKinney. The two of them enjoyed each other. And by the end of the night, he said to me, "Um, you got your million dollars. Wow, get out of here, man. And then he says to me with he's sort of a wink, big, robust guy, huh. he sort of winks at me, he says, shit, we spill more than a million dollars every day. <laughs> I'll never forget that That's line. great. So, you know, we started the commercial two days later, and it's one of the greats. It's wow. a really incredible spot that I'll show you. I mean, yeah, if you ever to wanted, you could cut pieces of it into this. Yeah, we will. That was maybe the biggest commercial that I was ever involved with, money-wise.
0: Yeah, right. But I
1: also, in in Japan, had the privilege of working with David Lynch. I came up with an idea for a campaign based on on Lynch's famous TV series, Twin Peaks. Uh Twin Peaks was a phenomenon in Japan, especially among young single women who actually made journeys to the town where Twin Peaks was filmed in, I think it was in Washington State or Northern California. And so we wrote a series of commercials based on Twin Peaks for the Japanese market wow. for another Coca-Cola product called Georgia Coffee. Uh-huh. Georgia Coffee is a that. canned coffee. And, it's, and you buy it in vending machines everywhere in Japan. And there's all these different flavors. There's mocha this and uh-huh. espresso this. And they come in little cans. And in the vending machines, you could order them hot or cold. Whoa, get out of here. And it's a fabulous product. You know, it's a little bit kind of like the mocha taste, almost like chocolate milk, but not quite as sweet. Uh The Japanese were nuts for this stuff, because I guess it had a high amount, had a lot of caffeine Uh and sugar, and it would really jack you up. Right, it was before Red
0: Bull, the days before Red Bull. Exactly,
1: way before Red Bull, but I went to the movie community rather than the advertising community, Mm -hmm. and I got David Lynch to shoot commercials from work that he had created, and so that was a great experience. was about two or three weeks, we made four commercials that were serial in nature. Before Asami disappears, she sent me this Oscar from Great Northern. When they searched her room, all they found was this picture and this deer head.
0: Let's think about this over a coffee. No, Lucy? Incredible. You two have got to try this. It's rich. Man, oh man, this Georgia is damn fine coffee. It's true. What about this deer head? Notice the symbol, Ken. I think you and I should take a drive. Big Ed's Gas Farm,
1: Georgia. Oh, that's cool. We told a little story between, exactly, between the four commercials. And working with David Lynch was, you know, like working with David Fincher was an amazing privilege. Because, again, I was watching a master, a real master. So that's what propelled me into wanting to be a director and shoot stuff myself. Not that I could ever be at the level that those guys are at, but nevertheless, I could go chase other smaller projects and, and hopefully begin to direct and produce myself. And that's, that's what happened.
0: So what, what, what specifically happened? You said one day, all right, I'm going to just venture out and start a film production company? When I came back from Japan, so you were done in japan they're like okay you know doug you're done like this well i you
1: know in i i rushed back from japan i i could have stayed there and was having the time of my life but i felt you talk about passion to succeed and ambition i was ambitious to get back to the mother ship the new york office i had a lot of success on the coke brand also levi's fincher actually shot levi's commercials for me as well
0: they're even better broken in
1: so i had a body of work that was as good as anybody in the company in my opinion and so i wanted to go back and parlay that in new york so i was offered the number two creative job at, the, at, at McCann, New York, on the Coke business. So I rush, I leave Japan, and I get back, and by that time, the whole landscape of the advertising business changed. The famous talent agency called CAA, Creative Artists Agency, was now making Coke commercials. And this was the first time that big accounts had actually divided up their work and distributed it among more than one ad agency.
0: So what's CAA is like a CAA is a talent agency. So like they are founded uh, by Mike Ovitz. Okay. The, you know the so they most rep, famous. Uh, they rep actors. Actors and music, they rep whoever, actors yeah. and screenwriters. Entertainers. And
1: CAA is the most powerful talent agency in the world.
0: So they'd work direct. Say hey, I want whatever. Or, they went right know, direct right. to Coke. They okay.
1: bypassed McCann Erickson. Oh, wow. And they and they came out with a campaign which maybe you'll remember the polar bear campaign. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That was the beginning of the end. It changed the paradigm because the way the ad business worked is if you had the IBM account, nobody else did IBM commercials, just your
0: agency. It's like a monopoly, basically. Yeah,
1: and McCann Erickson had all the Coke business around the world and all the Nestle's business around the world. And suddenly there was an interloper because CAA basically promised Coca-Cola exactly what I was doing, which was, hiring the best directors and and technicians in hollywood right. to make the commercials right. not that the the people that did the you know that were more accustomed to working commercials weren't super talented because they are and they were they were and they are but there was there was an allure to working with movie directors Right, and you which were the, I fell for. And you were the in. And I, the was, I was an instigator, frankly, because right. most people were working with famous commercial directors that did almost exclusively commercials. Suddenly, I'm working with David Fincher and David Lynch and J.J. Abrams, actually, I did a spot oh, with wow. as well. So I felt very fortunate to get to work with these people, and, and I was inspired by them. So I, But I rushed back to New York thinking I'm going to be a big shot on the Coke business, and at that point, most of the Coke business was going to CAA, having launched with that very successful Polar Bears commercial. Meanwhile, the commercial I did with Fincher that won awards around the world, they didn't play it in the United States. Oh, wow. Because Coca-Cola didn't, didn't want to give McCann Erickson a pat on the back at that point. So they ran only CAA commercials. Oh. So suddenly I don't really have a job in New York because there's no Coca-Cola business that I'm gonna be
0: working on. Is it like sort of a commissions-based business too? Like, so you come back here and like the value of the account dictates your salary or your income for the year?
1: Not as an an employee, no, but the agency and the client have very specific types of monetary relationships. And classically in the sort of last generation, when I came up in the advertising business, it was all based on media buys. So if you're a big corporation and you spend $100 million on TV commercials, print ads, and radio, which is what it was in those mm-hmm. days, the internet wasn't there, mm-hmm. um, the agency would take, fi- I, I believe the, the classic percentage was 15%. Mm-hmm. So if they spent $100 million on media, then, then they, $15 million of gotcha. it went to the agency. Gotcha. And that's how fees were determined. Gotcha. So you were
0: getting your salary regardless.
1: I was getting my salary regardless. But creatively it was Your your salary was pegged on how valuable you know like any job. How right. valuable were you to the company? Right. So if you make hit commercials and you win awards and your client likes you then you get, you know, right. you, you get bumps and right. you, you know you start to make some money. Right. But suddenly there's no coke to be had and I'm put on I believe it was AT&T business to business. Uh, not that AT and T isn't a great company, but this was the driest advertising right, imaginable. Boring,
0: boring stuff. There.
1: And I couldn't take it, frankly. Right. I simply, the you know, after ha- after having been fortunate enough to work in Tokyo on you know Levi's and Coca Cola brands and work with huge budgets and and these famous directors who were inspirational, I just up and quit one day. I just up and quit.
0: Well, so you did literally like, all right, I'm done with this shit, and yeah. walked out.
1: Yeah, that's it. I mean, not that I had so much money that I could afford to not work for very long, right. but I just couldn't deal with it. Wow. So I quit and I started a little production company that I called Mad Dog Films and Mad Dog Films. So, was but you
0: knew then, OK, I'm leaving and I'm just going to start a film company because that's my passion. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just going to take a chance and see where it goes. Yeah. So here comes Mad Dog Films. Mad Dog Films. And um, that's ballsy. I guess uh, I Did guess you have the, Julian at that time? No. No, okay, no, so you didn't have any children. No,
1: this was in 90, this was 93, 94. Okay. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the way, looking back, yeah, I guess it was ballsy. Yeah.
0: but You had no income, basically. I had no income. And you were spending money building another business from yes. scratch. Yes, yes. Really, oh, the only credibility as a filmmaker was working with some directors who were very famous Well, that in didn't Well, that didn't really world. give me much credit. I mean, no. you know,
1: I, I couldn't use that as, you know, hire me because I worked with David Lynch and David Fincher you know right, cuz they're they're geniuses in their own right that doesn't mean that I have any talent so then how did you My mean? only talent was being fortunate enough to get them to agree to work with me
0: so what ha- so, so you start Mad Dog Productions and what I
1: started Mad Dog Films and I got a call from a, a buddy of mine an editor who had a little they had a very little production company, and they said, we've got a job for RCA Records. They want a little corporate film introducing their new leadership of the record label.
0: Did you have crew, like a crew and cameras and stuff? Well,
1: we did, sure. I mean, at that point, you, you put a crew together and you rent gear on an as-needed basis, on an ad hoc basis. So these friends of mine had the job to make a little short film introducing the new the new thinking at RCA mm-hmm. Records, and they asked me to direct a film.
0: Uh, who who is this friend? Like, how did you know this person? Uh,
1: how did I know him? And how
0: did he know what you were doing now? Like, were you hustling? It's like saying, "Hey, here we are. You know, Mad Dog Films. You know, we're ready to do. You know, any sort of."
1: This is a buddy of mine named Alan Miller, who's been a longtime editor on the New York scene, and and I I guess I just knew Alan socially for years. Okay. And he called me up out of the blue and said, "You know, we're pitching." We're pitching RCA to do a little film. Why don't we attach you as the director? First game. We'll, we'll run it. We'll run it through our company and I'll edit it, but you direct it. okay, cool. so <laughs> so we did and uh, I came up with an idea of uh, having the the president of the label and his general manager, Bob and Jack, who I ended up working for uh, for many years, walk around lower Manhattan. And ultimately have a conversation about their vision for the label at a diner. I don't know if you know the diner in Tribeca, Square Diner. Yeah, of course, yeah. Famous diner. Yeah. It was just a cool place to have a conversation. Right. We sh- we shot that commercial. And were they into it? They are like, wow,
0: that's an amazing idea. Well, they
1: so. liked it. And I also pitched the idea of keeping it in black and white. You that's know, cool. basically showing that these guys were thinking outside of the box. Mm-hmm. And black and white was a little out of the box. Right. And uh, the thing that I will always remember from that little experience, it was a one day shoot and we ended up cutting like a seven minute film. Mm -hmm. But what I'll always remember is just by sheer luck, luck is important in life. Absolutely. It's absolutely important. And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. But when you get it, you recognize it and you go with it. Yeah. So we're in this square diner and I've got Bob and Jack across from the booth talking to each other. And they're having a great conversation. And every time Bob says something, and he's the he's the boss, there's an actual old cash register in this diner, and the, it would in 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 sync every time he'd say something you know interesting, ka-ching, get out of here, and then he'd say something else, ka-ching, <laughs> and it was real, and and it's as if we had done it in post production. Wow, it was just fantastic. So anyway, the long and the short of it is that that uh, Jack Rovner, who was the GM called me up a, a week or two after we finished the film asked me to come to his office I thought he was just going to you know we we're going to have lunch he was going to say thanks for doing a good job he I, I went to his office and he offered me creative director of RCA Records wow you know which had offices in Los Angeles and New York so as a mu- like as the, the music creative side director of stuff? I had never worked for a record label but he knew my advertising background and my job as an as a creative director at a record label was to oversee the music videos, which that I certainly had an understanding of because music videos are very much like commercials mm-hmm. for, for artists and supervise a team of graphic designers for all the album packaging, artwork, print ads, et cetera, et cetera. Again, advertising, pre, advertising, pre-internet advertising, yeah. at that point. But it's all not, advertising not far stuff, yeah. away. So, uh, so I had a staff of, I don't know, six, seven, eight people. And I was suddenly in charge of all the, all the marketing materials for all the artists. Get out of here. And RCA had a very successful run while I was there. So who were some of the artists? Christina Aguilera. Started filming her when she was 16 years old. Wow. And we made what was called an EPK, electronic press kit. Of Christina that helped launch her around the world. We had the Foo Fighters. We had the Kings of Leon. We had Dave Matthews Band. We I did tremendous amount of work with that band. David Gray. There were a lot of really fantastic artists.
0: Are you still in touch with any of the
1: artists? Some of them. Some of them. It's funny. I just ran into the road manager of Dave Matthews Band. They were just playing in New York. A couple of weeks ago, what Dave was? Yeah, like a couple of Friday nights. Yes, ago, right? I missed it. But Michael, who was I met, you know, 20 years ago when I was doing videos with Dave Matthews, is now a major manager of artists, and I ran into him in the subway in Brooklyn. No way. And we're going to have coffee next week. That's amazing. It's Fun. So anyway, Jack offers me this job, and suddenly I'm in the music business, and that's I mean, that's a cr- and crazy. That's, so I went from, and so what was then called Mad Dog Films, I put it aside, and I put it aside for. Close to eight years. So you were at RCA for eight years. Yeah. And then, you know, at that point, the internet reared its ugly head and and file sharing, illegal file sharing. Napster. Napster. And I'll never forget, Bob Jameson, the president, sat all the VPs in the label down in the conference room and said, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you all to understand that a year from now, when we have a vice president's meeting, half of you will be gone. Because the business has changed. Napster has ruined our business, and we didn't react to it in a timely fashion or in a smart fashion. The game's changed. We're not going to be able to sell the kind of number of units that we've been selling for so many years at $16 wow. a seat. I mean, record label. Yeah. It's over. Wow. So I hung on for I don't remember how many more months. But they brought in a new regime. Bob and Jack were out. And uh, Clive, da- the famous Clive yeah. Davis, actually took over RCA at that point. Okay. And I wasn't on Clive's team, and so you know they they finished out my contract, and I was gone. So now suddenly, you know, I'm in so my. So it's 2001, in, 2002 at this it's, point. It's 2003. Okay. I'm 50 years old, and I have no job. I have no job, and I'm thinking, well, what, what the hell am I going to do now? And that's when I decided, okay, well. Mad Dog Films is coming back because even at 50, you start to feel ageism. You're making what is considered a big salary, and they'd rather hire someone half your age and half your salary, and maybe twice your talent. I'm not suggesting that the kids that they hired weren't talented, because oftentimes they were very talented. But suddenly you're at 50, and you're in a a youth-driven business, as advertising and or the music business is very much about youth. It gets tough to get a good gig. But I didn't even try, to be honest. I just said, you know what, let's open up Mad Dog Films and, and try to give it a go. And then Mad Dog became Hudson River Films because there was another Mad Dog Films in New York. I don't know. And the reason that I was allowed to get away with it is I had incorporated in Delaware, they had incorporated in New York, and they were both legal incorporations. But they had been there longer. They were a larger company. They had a website, maddogfilms.com. So at that point, I actually took an office at 601 West 26th Street at a friend of mine's production space. He had a lot of extra offices. And I literally overlooked the Hudson. It was right on 12th Avenue. So I changed the name of uh, Mad Dog Films to Hudson River Films. And now with the music background that I had, I somehow started to get calls to do films about promoting new albums and music-related stuff. So these
0: like little trailers that they would make, you know, like about the behind-the-scenes type stuff or, you know, about the artist and...
1: Yes, I wasn't getting big music videos, let's put it that way. Nor did I, you know, I did a, a, my share over the years, they, but never was I considered, you know, a big-time video director. But I was better at the doc use style stuff.
0: So who was like your first call at Hudson River Films?
1: Uh, You know, I ended up getting the New York Philharmonic became a client. I did a lot of short pieces for them.
0: For which would air where?
1: Which would air at that point, uh, mostly the internet. So on their website. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and and then I, I got American Express as a client, which was a fabulous client. So they
0: actually do really cool pieces, you know. They're on my website. Yeah, I know. You I've can, seen a bunch I mean, of them. I mean, you know, yeah. I
1: got to interview Sidney yeah, amazing. the late yeah. great feature yeah.
0: film director
1: of, you know, one of the truly great directors. Yeah. And so for American Express uh, Open, which was the business side right. of American Express, I started doing a lot of work. Yeah, And that was fantastic. And then the Herbie Hancock work, you know, really kind of changed my direction. So how did that happen? Well, that, that that's a pretty decent little story. I was at my office at 601 West 26th Street uh, one day, uh, late in the afternoon, about 5 o'clock, the phone rings. And it's it's my ex-boss, Jack, the same guy that yeah. I filmed at the Square diner. diner, yeah. And he was my ex-boss. But Jack, you know, didn't care that I was his that I wasn't working for him anymore. He gets me on the phone and, and in a very fast, brusque way, he said, I need you to go shoot something for me. I go, yeah, what is it? He goes, I just need you to do it now. It's five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I'm like, Jack, you know, I have plans. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And he says, it's Herbie Hancock and John Mayer in the studio. Wow. I said, okay, Jack. I I'll love
0: that song, Stitched Up is the tune. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah.
1: That's exactly right. They made that song up that day. John Amazing. and John and Herbie. And I and we and my my partner on this venture, John Fine, and I filmed it that very first day that those two met. Get out of here. I
0: mean, is that just like holy shit, like John Mayer and Herbie? I mean Herbie when Hancock. he said
1: to me Herbie Hancock I mean, I was a huge Herbie Hancock fan. And a John Mayer fan. Yeah. So he says to me, You're gonna film John and Herbie I'm like, where do I go? But right. this if, but that was not my first answer. Right. My first answer was almost like, fuck you, Jack, right. I don't work for you anymore. Right. It's Friday night. Exactly. And it was very kind of fortuitous. Right next door was this young filmmaker named John Fine, who I had just started to get to know because you know, I hadn't, I hadn't been at that office for very long. John was there a few months uh-huh. ahead of me. And they wanted it to be a two-camera shoot. And fortunately, I had two cameras. But I didn't have a second camera op, so I went next door to John. I said, "John, are you free tonight? We we I need to shoot something, and and I need a second shooter." And he was sort of the same way. Well, I you know I got plans. I said, "John, it's it's Hervey and John Mayer. It's Herbie Hancock and John Mayer." And he and he he was just like me. It was like yeah. okay, let's do it. So we went over to this. So you
0: each operated one of the cameras. Yeah,
1: we went over to this studio and you know, I think it was on 18th and 2nd Avenue, Uh I I don't remember exactly. And we hung out for four or five hours filming them record that song. Wow! And Jack at that point, I think was managing Herbie briefly. And this was meant to be promo footage for when the record drops, gotcha. Not a feature film, yeah. yeah. Not a feature documentary. But so this we,
0: album was Herbie Hancock with multiple artists correct. doing a tune,
1: correct. Yeah. And there was no, it you know, it became known as Possibilities, but that right. came much later when we were interviewing Herbie, and that word kept popping up, and then suddenly, wow. Herbie and John and I, you know, sort of said, Herbie, there's your title. Yeah. You know, it didn't, it wasn't called Possibilities right, in the right. beginning. It was simply he's recording with a whole bunch of diverse artists and different genres of music. My partner John and I, when we finished that night, we took the footage back to our office and we each had an edit room. And John's a hell of an editor and we edited it down into, I don't know, two or three minute little teaser, sizzle, whatever you want Mm -hmm. to call it these days, which is the way that the business works these days mm-hmm. to sell anything of significance these days you need you generally you need a sizzle piece it shows a network or whomever you're dealing with what what your project is going to look like right so we cut this little sizzle of the Herbie john mayer collaboration and it just so happened we were sharing office space with a guy named alex gibney Alex is probably the preeminent documentary filmmaker in the world today. He, he's won an Oscar and he's at any given moment, he's probably got 10 films being made. He's become prolific. He wasn't then, he had just made uh, Enron, smartest guys in the room. And that put Alex on the map. Wow. And, then, and then his career just zoomed to the top. But Alex, I shared space with Alex and we were friendly. So I took the promo to Alex's office and said, Alex, t- check this out, I think we got something cool here. And he loved it, he's, he's a big music fan. Right. He had done a 10-part series on the blues, so he was very much, you know, he's very well educated in the music world. So Alex at that point had a really good relationship with uh, Mark Cuban and uh, uh, his, his film company. He took it to Cuban's company and said we want to make a documentary you know about the making of this record because Herbie's going to be is going to be traveling all over the country and and overseas dealing with all these incredible artists and we think it'd make a great show and Cubans company said yes let's do it so cool. suddenly we had a budget wow i actually i you know you talk about i took some chances because it these things don't happen overnight. So while they gave us an, an immediate yes, it took three months before the paperwork was done, the lawyers, the deal memos, and any and any money uh, crossed hands. So, but meanwhile, they've scheduled all these recording sessions. brett got to lay out the money. So I had to. I laid out about one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars while Whoa. I'm waiting for the deal to be done. Jeez. I mean, I happen to have had that money in the bank thank god but i was taking a big risk cuz there was no guarantee that the deal would ever you know there there's always a chance that the deal will fall apart right. as we all know and you know i would i had my share of sleepless nights thinking it. that this deal is going to fall apart and i'm out 150 grand right cuz i'm buying airfares for john and me to london toronto los angeles you know we shot all over the place as well as New York, it's airfares, it's hotels, it's right. meals, it's gear, right? You and know. you're paying him, I'm,
0: I imagine, too, right? No, oh, you guys are partners no, at this point.
1: I'm I'm paying him with IOUs, right? Um, cause he, but he's not having to put out any money. He's he's giving me his labor. Does he have a piece of the equity of the project? Yeah. Once we signed the deal, then John and I, you know, I made him an equal partner, even though I had been laying out all the dough mm-hmm. and taking all the risk. But he was, he's very talented and he deserved to get his fair share of mm-hmm. the action. It's not like we made a lot of money on this thing. We, we, we made something certainly, but the film did well. Right. I mean, it's your own and map. It, it, it helped us, you know, it helped our credibility. Of course. Both, you know, John and I were still work together, but we also, have our own companies and do lots of jobs apart but this past weekend we were actually in DC filming another Herbie Hancock, you know, project. You know, he's the chairman of the Thelonious Monk Institute yeah. of Jazz and they had their piano competition this past oh, yeah, weekend yeah, yeah. in DC.
0: I've actually seen that's been filmed before. Yeah. I've seen stuff about that. It's before, fantastic.
1: It? 12 world-class young pianists. Yeah, each play for 15 minutes. One after the next after the next. So it was a very long day but it it was it was the the quality of the music and 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 musicianship was just phenomenal. That's amazing. So we filmed that and then the next day they have a fundraising gala at the Kennedy Center. Cool. And they honored Aretha Franklin who died this year. Right. John cut together a 5-minute tribute to Aretha. Wow. Uh, using they, this
0: historic stock footage. Using
1: or? using yeah, archival footage wow. of all kinds that played on a big screen at the Kennedy oh, Center wow. and then uh, and then they had a tribute also to Dee Dee Bridgewater. Oh, nice. Who's one of the preeminent uh, jazz singers yeah. in the world who's a phenomenal. So it was really a lot of fun. That's so, amazing. So Herbie has been very supportive. So after we finished the film. So you
0: basically were filming all of the sessions with the artists. We filmed all the sessions. Right, and some behind-the-scenes stuff with Herbie. and you know. Yeah, a lot of behind-the-scenes, everywhere we went. That's awesome. So who were some of the artists on
1: that? Brian Eno. Uh-huh. Christina Aguilera, Damien Rice, um, Johnny Lang, the the great blues guitarist. There was about 10 10 artists. But, you know, Herbie has a unique ability to make new things out of old. You know, he's always challenging himself and the musicians that he works with to find new direction. And so, you know, these would be In most cases, they were existing tunes. Mm -hmm. When these artists would collaborate with Herbie, they would turn it into something brand new. So, you know, Herbie continues all these years.
0: He's always challenging himself with new kinds of work. He's like a really eccentric kind of guy, too. Like, just when you hear him talk in interviews and stuff, he's like, his brain is just like operating like this crazy fast pace. He's a genius, Herbie. I mean, literally a
1: a genius. He was a child prodigy on the Keys. He grew up in Chicago. He went to, I think it's Grinnell College, Mm -hmm. I think it's in Illinois, Mm -hmm. and, and was an engineering major. And he's an engineer and mathematician. You know, at age 20, somehow, he got to New York and somebody said, you know, Miles Davis needs to hear you. And at age 20, suddenly, he's in one of the great... Amazing. quartets of jazz yeah. has ever seen with miles and tony williams Absolutely. on drums yeah. and ron carter on bass yeah. for four, four animals of, uh, of their field and wayne shorter who's herbie's dearest friend you know they, they're know yeah, yeah they're best friends oh, wow. unfortunately wayne is 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 really weak right now he's pretty ill oh, uh, although he was actually this past weekend on saturday night john and i did not film because it was the Kennedy Center Honors, Wayne was honored as one of the Kennedy Center oh, wow. honorees. Of course, Herbie was there. That's awesome. And played. Yeah, Wayne is an amazing character. At any rate, Herbie is the uh, the goodwill ambassador of jazz for UNESCO. And UNESCO and the Monk Institute have combined for the last seven years, and they have created an, a, a yearly event every April 30th They have what's called International Jazz Day in a different city around the world. Started the first one seven years ago, was at the UN General Assembly. And then we went to Istanbul. And then we went to Osaka, Japan. And we went to Paris. And then I think the White House, which was the only one that John and I didn't produce. Was that during Obama Obama years? That was during, Obama was the host and, and a famous Hollywood producer produced it out of the White House. Okay. You know, when I think I a, saw
0: that. It was on PBS or it, something. Right? It was on. I think it
1: was actually on uh, ABC. Oh, Was it? Okay, yeah, I remember seeing it. It was beautifully done. You know, it was unfortunate. They they spent real money on that one. Yeah. Which of course we didn't get to. You know, make our version. But they did a heck of a great job. So. And then so then we Washington D.C. And then we did two years ago. We did Havana, That's which was cool. an incredible wow. experience. I mean, that was the hairiest thing I've ever done. Really. We brought in, like, $3 million worth of gear, and it was... Uh, and you left with uh, $1 million worth of gear? <laughs> we got it all back, Fish. thank God, but it was it was very difficult because the Cuban government tried to take over our production. No way. And that's a whole other story. Anyway, we did Cuba, and then last year we did St. Petersburg, Russia. Oh, cool. Which was also challenging. I mean, yeah. going from Cuba to Russia and, you know, trying to collaborate with the local, you know teams right. tested all of our skills, truly. And then this year, we're going to Sydney in, in oh, nice. late April. And they just announced next year, Cape Town, South Africa. Oh, wow. awesome. So because all this to say, because of the amazing Herbie Hancock, who I wanted to say also, he's a Buddhist. He and Wayne are both Buddhists. And they walk the walk. They are serene, kind, super creative geniuses who treat people with the utmost respect. And I will swing that right back to where we started this conversation an hour ago, which is, that to me is success. Right. When agree. you can be that kind of human being and be so talented and yet humble yeah, and treat people so well of all walks of life. You know, Herbie talks to the guy driving the cab. It sounds like a cliche, but he does. He tre- he, he'll engage the cab driver with the same energy and enthusiasm and intelligence that he he will a fellow genius musician. Yeah. And and that to me is success. When you can that live that more. kind of life with integrity and and humility, uh, you know, that, that that's that's success to me. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that sums it up <laughs> sums it up well, brings us full circle. So anyway, so thanks to Herbie uh, I've gotten to see the world. Some people join the Navy to see the world. I joined Herbie's team and got to see the world. So, uh, and then you know, I continue to, to to work on other music projects, and I I also continue to work with my buddy Kevin, on True Crime. So it's kind of a strange strange bedfellows, yeah. but uh, that's that's
0: kind of you know my thing. Well, I mean, Doug, I know I know. Um the the podcast listeners don't really necessarily know the background to getting you to sit here, but one of the things that you did say was that you know your life isn't interesting or fascinating, and you know I think I and the guys here are filming. This is probably one of the most fascinating uh, podcasts that we've had, and you know I I just can't thank you enough for spending this Saturday morning with us, and you know you really it's uh you you're you're just we are speaking about Herbie being such a humble guy. I think that describes you pretty well too, because, you know, your your life is pretty amazing, and I'm just uh, I'm happy to to learn more about it and get to know you better. Well, thank you for that for that, um,
1: and and inviting me and pushing me to come here because more stuff came out than I figured. I I was afraid I wouldn't have anything to say and and that you know we would we, we, you'd get nothing out of this. But the fact that you enjoyed it, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I appreciate a, it. My my pleasure and honor because I. I uh, your audience should know that I didn't want to do this, but I did it because Doc M- Mudgill is, is a super guy, and I didn't want to turn down his offer. So well, I'm, thank so, you, I'm thank, so glad Thank you, you.
0: Thank you, Doc. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. You can find the corresponding video to this podcast on YouTube, Facebook, and IGTV. Let's get it.